People always mean well. They cluck their thick tongues and shake their heads and suggest oh so very delicately. Of course, I've suggested it myself. But I hate to even think about it. She needs me. It's not as if she were a, a maniac, a raving thing. She just goes a little mad sometimes. We all go a little mad sometimes. Haven't you? Hello there, and welcome to Pivotal Film. I am Tom Nolan. And I'm Mario Ponzio. And this is episode 28. Burr, burr, burr. Do we have episode 28 music, specific music? Do we write that? Why would, why would we have that? I don't know. I feel like it's something we should have, though. Don't you? No. We're professional We're, podcasters. We should have specific music is, written for every significant episode. That is ridiculous. I've, I've never heard of something <laughs> so profoundly insane. Just have Larry hum something. Oh, Kasdan. You say Larry and I think ex-coworker. Oh, you, he's there too? <laughs> um, maybe. He might have he got lost on right, his you're way fine, to you're, find. With the quarantine, you're spending time to finish the Larry Museum that we have that oh, we started a well, long time ago? Well, of course. That's nice. That's nice. Speaking of building museums to film, we have Doug Lyman being signed on to film this uh, Tom Cruise feature that's going to be shot in space with the help of NASA and Elon Musk. Don't know if that's the best choice after, you know, what Doug Lyman's kind of kind of had going on there with Chaos Walking, with Chaos Walking being met with, like, horrific reviews and needing $15 million on reshoots. Uh, like, I think they even brought in, like, Fetty Alvarez to direct it because Doug Lyman was off doing something else. Um, well, I just hope everyone's prepared to lose Tom Cruise. I don't see how yeah. this goes well. Well, then what would be interesting is we could get Matt Damon to find Tom Cruise. So it'll be like a, a reverse where Matt Damon has to save somebody else. Oh, so and just call it Saving Tom Cruise? Yeah. Werner Herzog directs the documentary about Matt Damon going up to space to save Tom Cruise. I'm into that. Yeah, I, I, I think that. that would work. Yeah. It's like a modern. I, that would that would uh that would definitely work. You also hear Andy uh, Ryan Gosling's gonna be an astronaut again in the new uh, Andy Weir adaptation. Oh, don't, don't know what don't know what really struck Ryan Gosling to be um to be the astronaut guy, but here he is. Just wants to get out of the house. Just wants to get, <laughs> to out, get out of the house, house and get. Even Mendez is just too much for him. He needs to get out of there. <laughs> uh, and then in sad news, um, Academy Award nominated and famous kind of. Uh, gay activist, writer, and HIV activist uh, Larry Kramer, who was nominated for uh, Woman in Love, uh, the Ken Russell film from 1969, has passed away of pneumonia. So that's that's questionable if that was maybe COVID. Um, I feel like if it was COVID, they would have said it was COVID because they're just 
looking for everybody to be dead from COVID. So that is true. And it's, it's one of the sad ones too, because, uh, I actually like women in love. You can't find it anywhere now. Anymore. I've never seen it. It's good. I, I like, I usually like Ken Russell's stuff. He had good, like street photography. He's always kind of like, he's always on the vein of, um, just kind of filming at the ground level. Mm-hmm. It felt like a lot more naturalistic than, uh, Woody Allen or, um, Oh fuck. What the hell was his name? Uh, you know, directors of that kind of early on New Hollywood time. Mm-hmm. Um, the other one I think is John Schlesinger for Midnight Cowboy. Um, I really love what they did, and, and I kind of liked I liked Women in Love, and also the fact that you know, um, Larry Kramer ended up losing to uh, one of the worst screenplays and films of the last fifty years, in my opinion. That right. was. Well loved. Uh, he lost a ring Lardner Jr. for Mash. Fucking oh, Robert yeah. Altman movie. I think that movie's garbage. Um, I it's I'm indifferent, like totally indifferent to Mash. But we've also talked about like my abject hatred of Robert Altman. So well, we I don't like him. That. I don't have to get into that again. No, no, I don't understand it. I don't. I don't love it. I don't. Um, I don't hate it. I just don't get it. Like, I just think uh, it's not for me. It's maybe it's, I'm just too late. Maybe the stuff that Altman did by the time I started watching cinema seriously was absorbed so completely into the vernacular that I just couldn't see it. So when I went to go watch Nashville, I'm just like, yeah, they're just everyone. No one will stop talking. Like, is this supposed to be interesting or what? (laughs) Or also, also the issue too, is I saw shortcuts at eight and that's just not a movie you can watch at eight. No. I rewatched it later, and it was still bad. Listen, I saw Shortcuts at an appropriate age, and it didn't work for me then either, although I really wanted it to. And it even has Julianne Moore bottomless, so that's supposed to help. And Tom Waits. Oh, yeah. You don't get All any better help. than that. You know, you know what is, is great, though, Tom? What's great, Mario? Beer. Beer is good. Beer is good. You're supposed to drink it because it's good, Yep. which is the motto from our our friends over at Nebco, because during this time of distant social distancing, the only beer we really have the ability to both get at the same time that's local is Nebco. Uh, we can probably get some counterweight at some point, but whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Real, real, real pack out. But you know what? Nebco is right, right smack dab in the middle of the Pivotal Film Towers and the Pivotal Film Satellite Studio. Yeah, and I'm just uh, used to they're, they're good. They're satellite good Studio Eleven, I think. I can't remember. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Twelve is across and, the street. I had actually mentioned this beer a f- couple months ago, saying that I wish this beer had come out when we talked about Alien, but uh, unfortunately it had not yet been, I don't think it had yet been created, bestowed upon the good people of Connecticut. Right. And that is Facehugger. Facehugger. An IPA, 6.8% IPA, uh, which is different for them. They typically do five uh, sevens to 6.2s for their... Um, single mm-hmm. IPAs. Uh, although we do have a beer from them for n- the next time we do a list episode, which is a single IPA, which I believe is 7.5%. Yes. Yeah, typically entire. what they list their doubles at. Uh, this is Simcoe, Amarillo, and Citra. Ah. It's got a nice orangey. It's supposed to be. Golden. They say citrusy and candied apricot. I don't get any of that. Now you're drinking this from uh, Growler. Growler. I'm drinking it because it's actually now locally released in cans it's been sent out to distribution so it's pretty popular 
Um, when this first released, it was actually $14 per six pack. Mm-hmm. I got this baby for $11. Yeah, I got it for 12 a couple weeks ago. So it's coming down. I, I really enjoy this beer. Mm-hmm. It's, it's simple. It's crisp. It's got a crispness to it. It, it doesn't have an overbearing flavor. Of um, like the, it lists like you know it says your face will be hugged by citrus and candy apricot notes. I don't get that at all. I get maybe a bit of of a citrus, like a bit of a citrus rind, like you know mm, rind when you have good. um yeah when you have when you have a nice Manhattan and you kind of like slip that rind across the rim of the glass. I don't know what that's like. Is that good? Well, I, I love Manhattan's. Huh. Like it's it's a bourbon drink. I like bourbon. Um, you know, but you get that like citrus afterbite. So you just get, you get that nice rindness. That's what, that's what I taste. That's mm-hmm. the only citrus I get from it. But I don't get like that kind of candied uh, New England IPA from this. I get just a lot more crisp and cleanness. Yeah. It. I mean, there's a, I would say it's a little bit hazy, but I think the, some of that New England haze may be that rind well, flavor well, that you were well, talking about. Bring, bring it up here to the camera. Well, that's, that's a pretty hazy beer. Yeah. I drink it. I drink it only out of cans. I have not yet poured it into a glass. Maybe I'll. Maybe I'll, I'll do that. Um, not right now. I was about to go downstairs. <laughs> I would have been ridiculous. Have Larry in the middle one. of a podcast. Um. Uh, Lawrence! <laughs> hey! <laughs> no, I don't want to read that script. Well, we told yeah, him I'm to sure, stop writing. I'm sure Purposeful Tourist is a great movie. No, just want to clap. <laughs> nope, not interested in a, a new Star Wars. No, nobody wants to read Solo. T- okay, he's... He's that gone. bit was that bit was bad. He's he's crying now. Um, no, I just meant that joke bit was bad. He's but, good. You know what? It's staying. It's staying. Yeah, well, yeah I'm definitely I, leaving it. I enjoy it. It's a good beer. What do, what do you think of this? What do you think of it? You like it? Good. Yeah. I mean, I had it a, a couple weeks ago. Uh, got a six pack of it. I thought it was. I thought it was. You know, easy drinking. Um, I I do think one of the good things I like about the New England Brewing Company IPA is that they all taste different. Um, they're not all just variations on Sea Hag, so this tastes different than Sea Hag, which tastes different than Yard Party, which I just had uh, a, a couple weeks ago. The Yard Party's just a pale ale; it's not, it's not. Right, right, but it's all. But they all. I think it's some brewing, some local breweries, which will not, which will remain nameless for the time being, um, are not so good at differentiating between flavors like that. Yeah, take that East Rock Brewing. <laughs> all your IPAs taste the same. Uh, no, I would agree though. Like I oh, currently, I are in the past week, I've had. Uh, well, right now, actually, I have three different New England IPA, uh, New England brewing IPAs downstairs, um, and uh, and I've had Sea Hag in the past week. So I have this. I have the Slim Spin Cycle. Uh, I've had Sea Hag and Super Super Not. All of them taste vividly different. Yeah. So you know they they are not just kind of doing a paint by numbers and replacing an ingredient here, placing a malt here you know changing gravity here a different hop addition here it's mm-hmm. it's all very unique yeah. um taste profiles for sure for sure um you know it's not unique taste profile tom <laughs> i was just gonna say that ah you stole my transition <laughs> well i'm glad to know that we're i've transitioned away from bad transitions into uh similar thought transitions that's, yeah that's a good one we're both right on the, right on the cutting edge there of our transition game um you do it you continue though you said it out loud you continue with it exactly um you know a bad way to have uniqueness is if you took a film from a few years ago like game night uh, a serviceably funny film and decided to remove all the humor 
90% of the humor from it and the charm and the wide swath of good performances. And, uh, you know, made a film you're going to dump in early uh, spring on the theaters, but then COVID happened and uh, you were forced to dump it on the Netflix because that's where it belongs. Yeah. And that is the new Michael Showalter film, The Lovebirds. He's fucking dead. We, we know he's dead, but we didn't kill him. He like to report a murder or whatever. We didn't murder anybody. One, two, three, go. No. Jabron! Okay, the guy's name is Jabron. Run, Leilani. And the girl's name's actually Leilani. Shit. She's running too now. Kind of slowly because she's wearing heels that look actually amazing. We have to go to the police because we have nothing to hide. Why is you run from the scene of the crime? Good question, officer. That's me covering up my body cam so I can beat your ass. Uh, Jabron and Liana have been a couple for four years where you meet them initially and they're, you know, it's the night after they first met. They're kind of just about ready to get gone on the first date and they're all lovey-govey and stuff and talking about how much they want to kiss each other and, you know, we get some uh, beach boys. A uh, Beach boys. What's that from? I can't remember. Anyways. Um, <laughs> oh, isn't that from Eurotrip or something like that? Eurotrip. I never saw Eurotrip. Right? Oh, that's a good that's a good one. It's better than this movie. Much better than this movie. We should have got Eurotrip too instead of this. Um <laughs> cut smash cuts to four years later, and the, the two are on the splits. You know, uh she thinks that Liana, played by um Isare, thinks that Jabron, uh played by Kamal Najani, is 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 you know too laid back and and too unambitious and he thinks she's too tightly wound and is expecting too much and they decide to break up and as they're having this argument they run into a bicyclist um, who they quickly try to see if he's okay but instead he freaks out and says he has to go and runs off even though he's bleeding and they're accosted by this man who they refer to as Mustache who claims to be a police officer who um, what's it called takes their car just takes commandeers their, car. their vehicle commandeers commandeers your vehicle and goes off in a chase uh, down the roads. They're helping him out, thinking that he's a this bicycle man is a criminal on the run. And then eventually Mustache runs him over, repeatedly killing him. Um, <laughs> and before, you know, thinking to kill uh, the, the couple is run off by a couple hipsters who think that this couple um, is the murderer. Uh, they, the couple runs, races off and, um, and decides that they're going to find the murderer themselves because yeah, they believe that's what that you do. they believe that the story um, of of what happened would be too ridiculous for the police to believe, and so they jump down a network of conspiracies and sex clubs with high prominent <laughs> individuals. Um, congressmen are involved. Kyle Bornheimer's there for too short of a period of Poor time. Poor Kyle so Bornheimer. Want... He was having yeah. such a strong year and it's just... Then he's yeah, just I, saw, I saw he was going to be in this. I was like, good, we're going to get that. And he's like... He plays like second fiddle to, to Anna Camp. Who's well, he wears a mask okay for actress. most of his scenes. Yeah. And he's, he's a, she's an okay actress, but she's not a good comedian. Um, and so it's just a bummer. Uh, they, they race around, you know, end up in the sex club and... Uh, Eventually, the, the sex club is overrun um, by the police, and it turns out that the police never suspected them at all. Um, <laughs> because however, of traffic cams. Yeah. However, it turns out that the mustache was one of uh, the police themselves uh, who had been blackmailing these rich people in their sex club 
for months and had killed the bicycle list because he had been his partner and kind of backstabbed him to make a higher profit off of it. Um, they eventually injure the mustache guy and then they get back together at the end. Uh, oh, the Amazing Race is also mentioned in it. Oh, right, right, right. Remember that? Horse. There's a horse kicking thing. And yeah. Um, yeah. This movie, this movie blows. Yeah, yeah it was it was it was tough. There was a couple of conversations that I thought were were funny, like the milkshake conversation was was very humorous. Um, some of Kumail Nanjiani's reactions to things are always are always very funny. But I think this movie is beyond what Michael Showalter is capable of as a director, um, which doesn't help by the fact that it's just a terrible, terrible script. Um I don't even really when they got to the sex club thing and I was like, what? Like, and it's in a regular secret theater, I guess, downtown. Well, it looks like it's in a just a nightclub. And it turns out to be a major theater. So I didn't get it. Very confused. I don't understand what was happening. Um, But it was pretty it was it was it was pretty rough. Um, And the fact that you don't get any kind of. There's like no supporting performances in this at all, uh, you know. I, Absolutely, yeah. I kept reading like, like reviews where they would mention like Paul Sparks' mustache, and I think the RogerEbert.com review said he was like real, like you know, really good. I think it was Matt Solar's Ice, and he, I was like, he didn't even do anything. He actually seems like he's not paying attention in any of his scenes. Yeah, and that's the thing. I I, I don't feel a necessitation to criticize any of the performances in this. I think Issa Rae and, and Kamal Najini are doing the decent work with what they can do. They at least have some amount of chemistry with one another. The relationship feels as though it's it's slightly believable. But when they're given so little to do and everything is presented in such a bland, insignificant way, yeah, um, with with no sense or scope of pacing, no necessitation of, of rising drama, it just is kind of a running montage of scenes that's just kind of getting them from point to point without a building anywhere well that's the weird thing Um, about it is that like it's a montage of scenes interspersed with them scenes of them sitting in the back of a a lift yeah and i i would find some of the elements of them navigating the relationship potentially interesting um to to a very small degree like that is the only thing i kind of pull from this that's that's minutely engaging that's the only part of this film and and the reason i say that is that's the only part of this film that has a developed arc that has like a a, you know uh, the conflict of them breaking up initially followed by them kind of navigating these incredible circumstances and eventually reconciliation and you get kind of like you know that, that noticeable turn in the dinner party scene where they kind of both realize um that they've misconstrued one another so there's at least some framework of narrative coherence there the problem is that that plays such a secondary role to this kind of murder mystery comedy chase film that is so <clears throat> blatantly undercooked. Oh, it's horrible. It's just awful. Um, that, that, you know, there's, there's no real natural response to anything that's going on. There's no sense of stakes. There's so many moments where I found myself fast forwarding through a scene just because I was bored to death by it. Yeah. Like that entire process of, of the naming off the individuals who are going to be in um, the sex scene, like, like in the, the orgy, like it's just so long and we get so many of these asides 
of these two telling jokes to each other that they wouldn't necessarily, I mean, fine, I'll, I'll suspend disbelief and say they wouldn't do that in a natural way. But like, you know, I typically be like, okay, they would do a couple of these, but they do it for like five minutes while yeah, they're naming yeah, off these names. And there's just no sense of urgency. There's not, I don't want to say urgency. <clears throat> there's no sense of, There is, there's never any sense of inherent danger there. There's never any sense of inherent knowledge or any sense of, of growth. Not, I don't want to say growth, but there's no sense that they're actually solving a mystery. It's just they're kind of like stumbling through set pieces. Well, the, because the stakes, the stakes that there that are there don't revolve around solving the mystery and then like um, exonerating themselves. It it is re- revolves around their relationship, and if I don't know about you personally, um, but I know that if I were involved in um, multiple murders, like a bunch of murders by the by, like the midpoint of the movie, they've seen a lot of people. Like nine. They've seen nine people die. If I was involved in or witnessed nine people dying, my relationship to my girlfriend would not really be high on my list of things to care about. And you're right. When I'm like sitting in the middle of like what appears to be a weird lottery style eyes wide shut sex party. I'm, I'm really not going to be quipping to the person that I'm there with the whole time. If I'm not supposed to be there at all, you know what I mean? If I'm supposed to be kind of undercover and stealth and just trying to fit in, I'm not just going to be, I'm not going to get shushed. I'm not going to be talking so much. I'm going to get shushed. And again, I suppose you could suspend disbelief, but why would I want to, why should I be suspending disbelief? They keep referencing things that happen in real life. So and it's, it's not supposed. I'm not. It's not supposed to be a fantasy. It's supposed to be a kind of fun murder mystery thing. But it's not any fun. It's it's fun when they're not doing any of the murder mystery stuff. Then it's kind of fun. Yeah, exactly. And, and it's an inherent failing of of those scenes where like they're quipping and making jokes. The two the two main scenes being that Anna Camp, uh, Kyle Bornheimer, um, barn scene, and um, the the sex party scene. Where there's there is some sort of stakes, but those scenes are so protracted that um, they add this quipping and this humor into it. It's so falsely inserted in there because the scenes themselves are so dragged out that without those kind of like distractions, they would be just unbearable. And and yeah, but, but with even with them, they're unbearable because you know that there's nothing going on in them. You know there's there's no reason for these scenes to exist because it's not even going anywhere. Well, it's, that's it's, why it's, it's just a, it's a, it's dead on arrival. And that's why I think it's kind of a failure of filmmaking. Um, I, I'm sorry, Michael Showalter. And that those scenes are shot, regardless of budget or whatever, in the most boring, bland possible way you could shoot that scene. Like, $16 million. Like, so if on. you have $16 million, Camille Nanjiani is not getting that much of that. Issa Rae is not getting that much of that. And you don't have anybody else in this cast. Anna Camp got Give $13 me, million. Dollars. I want another. I want a better. Pitch, that's, that's pitch perfect money, man. I want another barn. I want a better barn. I want uh, the the torture method in that barn scene to be something other than I've clearly been deep frying bacon for an hour. An hour of straight of just frying bacon to get that much bacon grease. And there's a big pile of bacon there. That's all you're going to give us? We're supposed to be kind of, um, you know, either to find this scary or funny or both. And it's just kind of like, I guess that's cool. And if Camille Nanjiani doesn't nail the take the grease line, like after that, 
then there's nothing there at all. You know what I mean? It's just 10 minutes of them kind of prattling, 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 thread of bacon grease, and then escape. And that's it. Well, the thing, the thing that this movie, the, the movie, that the, the thing that, what Lovebirds made me appreciate more was Pineapple Express. Um, well, because Pineapple Express is, is off the wall. But it's, it's, it's beyond like the fact that it's a funny movie. There's like a real sense of like, Elevating action. There's a reason, like, why David Gordon Green kind of ended up successfully directing a slasher film. The fact that beyond the fact that Pineapple Express is funny, even though you really don't sense too much of the stakes um, for the James Franco and Seth Rogen character, those scenes are at least so tightly edited, and and there's there's a rising action to them to the to the main conceit of the film that you know you're there for the ride. Even you know minimizing the humor in that or minimizing the charisma between the two leads, like. It's still kind of a fun, interesting uh, film. And in the same way, like I would even look at something as kind of silly and dumb of a movie as um, American Ultra, you know, that Max Landis Britain film, that the Jesse Eisenberg, um, Kristen Stewart movie from a few years back, which is, is, is fine and pretty mediocre in its own right. But at least like there's this like dwelling, and it's, it's beyond the fact that the, those films are action. And this isn't an action movie, but there's at least a sense of some sort of scope in, in, in the stakes being risen. You, know, you have supporting characters being killed off, you and you have, you know, an actual kind of progression of learning at least from the main actors. Like the main characters are at least learning things as they go along. They're not kind of just accidentally stumbling into things. They're not given the next piece of information. Every scene in this film isn't the characters learning something. It's the fact that somebody else is introduced into the film or something else is introduced to the film to make them stumble to the next place. Right. And that's just lazy storytelling. Well, I think what I think what you're kind of speaking to is a failure of a failure of filmmaking, but it's also one of managing expectations. So one of the reasons that Pineapple Express was allowed to kind of continue to escalate the the action and the stakes. Um and, and also like the the hilarity, because I love Pineapple Express. Um is because there's an expectation that this is what that kind of movie is. When this movie starts, the expectation is this movie is, you know, a fairly lighthearted romantic comedy thing. And then a mustache runs over a guy five times. And, and it's a violent, it's a violent death too. Right. Like, and then, so you're, we're expected to just kind of go along with, for the ride, but the movie never changes at all, which you could take to mean, that Michael Showalter thinks he's like subverting the genre somehow, but I think no, it's I just, think so. I think it's just bad. You know, I, I think that's what it is. I mean, I don't think Michael show the big sick. He got kind of lucky in terms of he had the right script for, to accentuate what he's good at doing on film. This is, this is not that he is not good at doing any of this stuff. Um, I think, I, I think he's just, I mean, he did a good job with, um, I mean, he didn't direct it, but he, he co-wrote like what Hot American Summer. When Hot American Summer is good for what it does. And, sure. Like we can't really blame Michael Showalter for but the Hot American the screenplay. But, but, when Hot American Summer is a parody. That's Yeah. That's a David Wayne film too. But but um, I, it's not to discredit Showalter has a director, like because it was when he's given decent work, decent work to build off of, he can do a good job. It's just when he's given something so inherently mediocre as, you know, a script from the writers of young people fucking that uh, he he just doesn't have the talent to kind of he doesn't have the talent make to elevate that rise it. above it. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Um, I think that is I think that is the last word here, Mario, on 
on Lovebirds. The last word with Tom and Mario. <laughs> That's good. That's good. When in 2024, when we finish our list, yeah, you know, we'll we'll switch over to that one. When COVID 22 is it? Oh my god, I'm not ready for it, Mario. I'm not ready. Um, but yeah, all right. I guess we'll be right back with uh, my number 28. I usually like to start out these bits with a discussion on, you know, the building action and the the, the, the story behind why I put a film where it is and, and try to sort of justify its position on the list with antidotes and correlations to the way I see film or the way I interpret film now. Uh, that's not the case this week. Because this film has kind of been a part of my DNA for almost as long as I can remember. Mm -hmm. Um, It's just, it's always been there. And no matter how much I come back to it and how much I revisit it, it it, it shapes the ways in which I sometimes can appreciate an aesthetic in a film or a really fine-tuned score. But it doesn't really build upon anything in my film knowledge or in what I search for in a movie or what gears me towards a certain genre. It just is inherently something I always have fun with, something that I always see, despite it's 60 years now Mm -hmm. um, of age, something as I see has still a cornerstone of its genre and something that still, you know, stands in, in strong brotherhood with the films that would come of its genre or the films that preceded it um a long long time ago when the in the before times tom when you and i (laughs) were allowed to sit across from one another and more easily have access to beer yeah um at the same time uh, i said that there were two directors um who would well three directors technically who would play uh very recurrent roles in this list. Um, I said, and when I introduced it, I said, one of those directors we mentioned once and they're not mentioned for a long time. That's all the way back in episode 52 when I talked about strangers on a train and finally we revisit him. Uh, as we approach the final quarter of our list, he will show up two more times. Uh, but this one at 28 stands as his most famous, most pivotal film of his own sort of, you know, filmography. Uh, This is based upon the 1959 Robert Block novel starring Anthony Perkins and Janet Leigh. It is Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho. Good afternoon. Here we have a quiet little motel tucked away off the main highway and as you see perfectly harmless looking when in fact it has now become known as the scene of the crime you know the plot of psycho you don't really need me to repeat it i'm not going to do it this time it's it doesn't matter you you know it um (laughs) The thing 
I find interesting about this film as I go on and on in the years with it. It's people's fascination. And it was actually extenuated by me finally reading in preparation for this episode, Robert Block's um, novel, which was only released a year before this film came out. I'm not even sure technically it was commercially released. Hmm. It must, must have been. But uh, uh, by the time, so it definitely wasn't deeply embedded in the pop culture knowledge. No, it is not. Um, and it wasn't at the time because, you know, the, the, the twist in this film of Norman Bates being the murderer, uh, playing, dressing up as his mother, or the death of um, Janet Lee's Marion Crane still came as a surprise. Um, you know, but the thing I find interesting from uh, Browder Crosley's and, you know, Paulina Kale's review of this is kind of their, and Paulina Kale actually never directly reviewed it, but um, it, was, it was John McCarkin. John McCartan uh, reviewed it for New Yorker. Uh -huh. Pauline Kale just kind of referenced lately, but there's a, a focus on the perversion of the film and a focus on, and even like on the motifs and ideas of like this real raw sexuality meets violence and, yeah. and what Hitchcock was doing there. That shit and bores I, the crap out of me. And the reason that bores the shit on me is I firmly stand in the opinion that Hitchcock did not give a fuck about that. Nope. And the reason I say that now firmly um, of that opinion is that Robert Block's novel is so overtly covered in that. Um, a lot of people say like, oh, he, you know, Hitchcock is making really quiet references to, you know, Freud's conceit of the id. Like I watched, you know, all these YouTube reviews of the id and uh, the Oedipal complex and just kind of bringing that forward. And it's like oh. Robert Block in the first seven pages of psycho talks about a scene where norman bates who's actually he's introduced in the book he's he's the first first introduced he's a main character more than mary crane is um talks to his mother about the oedipal complex like his obsession with reading books of psychology and meditations on dimension and being mm -hmm. are all throughout the book psycho yeah. like psycho is definitively about you know this merging of sexuality and violence um you know Norbert Bates goes off on a long tirade about calling like women bitches and whatnot they're bitches who are just like he goes off on like says bitches like 13 or 14 times in a single paragraph while he's watching Mary Crane she's called Mary Crane in the book like uh -huh. naked um and you know that's just that's not the movie the movie to me the thing that I find interesting about it is it's a play. It's a play thing. It's 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 this really intricate, fun game between the audience and Hitchcock as a director. Um, mm -hmm. Hitchcock had just been coming off of North by Northwest, and a lot of people were saying that he was starting to lose his touch. Even um, interestingly enough, uh, Richard Brody, when he's talking about how great like Psycho being like one of the greatest films of all time, considers North by Northwest like one of Hitchcock's worst movies. That makes sense it, to me. He calls it stodgy. Um, surprisingly enough, I, I I don't know if you know this, Tom, I disagree with that assessment. Oh, I'm not saying that I, I agree with it. I'm saying I can see Richard Brody saying that. Oh, but, you know, I would disagree with that. No, I um, like North by Northwest. I also like North by Northwest. <laughs> but a lot of people were saying if he was losing sort of his touch with this um, cinematic 
perspective, you know, the playing with dimension, like dimension and the playing with, with um, field of vision or characterization. Because uh-huh. um, North by Northwest kind of has a little bit more of a paint by numbers sort of sleuth film noir dimension dimension to it. Well, North by Northwest is all, all also about scope where a lot of his films don't they deal with a kind of like claustrophobic space where north by northwest decides to like open everything up into this huge as huge as he can yeah it's it's interesting actually in like his introduction to north by northwest uh like when alfred hitchcock's introducing the movie i think like what has a shown on like television in the 70s he said like it's a great track travel movie you start yeah. in new york and you end up in the mountains and in the farmlands that's kind of just fun travel movie. so but a lot of people were saying he was losing touch after north by northwest that maybe he's becoming a little too commercial maybe a little too detached well that's probably what it is more than anything village. Yeah. um some may saying it was best that he's kind of getting into a twilight of his career and so he sought out like this new avenue just going off and he finds you know this block novel that's gets suggested to him and you know, it's it's completely kind of, for the most part, kind of out of his wheelhouse. Um, and, you know, Paranaut kind of scoffs at it. They refuse to finance it. He ends up having to finance it himself. He ends up having to use his own Alfred Hitchcock Presents um, TV crew. There's mm-hmm. a reason why it has like a lot more of a TV presentation <clears throat> than the cinematic presentation you see in North by Northwest. Um, you know, and, and it ends up being a wild success. But the, the entire conceit uh, that this movie like dwells so much into, you know, the, the disassociation with romantic love, or in you know the propensity of sexuality and violence is just they're just things that felt carried over from the novel. The things that aren't carried over are are these this visual play, like I say, um, you know, you do in the beginning. This this camera has it pans across Phoenix. Arizona you know you do feel kind of as though you're you're in this weird sort of it's I don't want to say voyeuristic in a sexuality term I want to say voyeuristic in a curiosity way you are searching for something you're looking for something of interest and you know you eventually come in Hmm. on that that. that room and you find a story you find an interesting story of these you know 1960 two people in bed together that's pretty that's pretty taboo at the time, you know. Yep. It looks like they're having an affair, but like, this is a story I want to I want to see, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, let's watch this story, and so we follow this story, and we follow it, you know. And we see there's like there's a little bit of, you know, Sam Loomis and Marion can't get married yet because Sam has a lot of debts from his father, and you know Marion's kind of struck by that. Sam goes off. He lives out of. He doesn't live in Phoenix. He lives in um, California. And Marion's trying to figure out a way, and eventually this forty thousand dollar deposit on a property comes in, and Marion takes the money. And what is this? We got we got a new dwelling action, you know. We got new building tension and new building interest. We've gone from you know sex out of wedlock, which is interesting, to now thievery, major thievery. And you know now we're changing perspectives too. Now we get like that point of view and that feeling of guilt. Before it wasn't necessarily guilty. You know, before it was just kind of a relationship, but now that she's looking at the money and feeling the guilt, we get kind of we start hearing the voices in her head. We start hearing her projection um, of of what other people are saying or thinking, and we get that point of view shot of her looking at the money on the bed mm-hmm. and the distorted shots of like when she first sees the money, and it quickly it, it 
kind of like one fluid shot, it cuts to um, her packing the bags. Like we're getting sort of this elevating action and we're following it and we're really locked into it. As a kid, I was watching this, I wasn't really getting that, but I was getting, feeling myself getting closer and closer to this movie. Can you still hear me? Because you're frozen on my screen. I'm, I'm, I'm listening, yeah. Okay. Um, and then we follow her. She goes off on the road to go to California to see Sam and start through new life. And then we get this kind of, uh, we get this, what feels like it would be a Chekhov's gun, but it ends up just being, you know, um, a nothing. And, and this cop, this cop's who's following her, who's got the dark rimmed glasses, looks like he's the cop from the highway to hell, that great ni- early 1990s horror movie. <laughs> it's Patrick Bergen and Christy Swanson. That's a good one. Patrick Bergen plays a devil cop who I think C. Thomas Howell. He steals Christy Swanson Whoa. and takes her to hell. No, Patrick Bergen isn't the cop. Patrick Bergen's the devil. The cop is played by some other guy. It's a pretty funny movie. Um, but, you know, you get this and, like, she's freaking out and the internal monologue's building and building. We're getting a lot more rapid cuts. And it just ends up being a nothing burger. It's, a Macgu- it's you know, by the Hitchcock definition of the term, it's like the Macgu- it's the MacGuffin. You know, mm-hmm. the cop is a MacGuffin. And then we settle in as she goes off the road during the rain into the Bates Motel. And then we have this great scene uh, and it's this interesting cat and mouse. You know, we get these like really nice low, uh, wide, low medium shots, medium shots of of Marion and and Norman talking to each other. We get that really great Anthony Perkins performance as they're doing like a cat and mouse discussion of the mother. And then, you know, when he shows a bit of of timidness and a bit of, but a bit of resilience in the state of mind of, you know, sometimes he wishes he could just put her away. We change angles to the side. We're just getting a side perspective. It's a little more vulnerable. It humanizes him a little more, you know? And the thing I found interesting too, is he cast Anthony Perkins in this, you know, who had starred um, basically in Love Story. I think he had starred with, oh man, like Barbara Streisand the year before in a sports college movie. I don't care if it was Barbara Streisand, but he'd just been like kind of like a, a teen hunk sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, in the book, Norman Bates is like fat and old. <laughs> so it's 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 a change in that, you know, a change in expectations of of, of what you're gonna see. And then when you know Marion suggests that he puts her away somewhere, you get that great scene and that great that great monologue where Norman says, Oh, they say oh so delicately. And mm-hmm. I just love the way Anthony Perkins delivers oh so delicately. And we get that tight shot and he leans in and you get a tight close-up. He leans into the camera, affirms this real dominance. And and Re has the viewers of this are just getting this ramping, ramping, ramping tension. And it all, you know, crescendos in that shower scene, you know, where you know, you get, you, get, you get that visceral violence and whatnot and, and, and the shock of, of the nudity, whatever, but you know, the thing that really punctuates it, and it's unfortunate that the shot is interrupted by, I can't remember if it was Janet Lee blinking or her eye an involuntary move, but he's get, he tries to get a single take as the camera pans out. And the opening shot of a phoenix, you know, it, even though it flows in different cuts, it kind of has this, this sense of the way the camera moves of a single interrupted take. Uh-huh. And if it wasn't for like her eye moving, you know, and so they have to do a quick cutaway to the shower before it cuts back. You know, he had to, he had to like edit that in. Uh-huh. If, if you didn't get that, you know, you just get this uninterrupted shot as it goes back to the money. And you get this realization that you kind of been played with for the fact that the first 48 minutes of this movie, you're following this really, it, it feels like this really intriguing story of a woman who's stolen this money 
and her dealing with the guilt of that and can she get away with it and instead all that's wiped away she doesn't fucking matter she's dead and now this is the story about norman bates and, and from there it kind of goes a little more into the typical um whodunit sort of slasher we still get some great scenes um you know like the uh the scene where Argo blast gets 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 murdered and climbs the stairs hitchcock in a 1968 interview said it's it's kind of like he did that scene to kind of like convey an orchestra in the way of he felt like he would start losing an audience and so he, he does that shot where it's high up and it feels like violins and the score it actually self um is building you know that that herman score is kind of building he says it comes Great, crashing yeah. down crashing down with like a brass with uh-huh. that single take of him stumbling down the stairs and, and you know it's, it's punctuated by those nice shots but but the thing that always draws me to this is just the way you twist and turn the audience around uh-huh. it and, and that's the thing that always brings me back to this is you have this self-contained movie where you follow this woman and her track you have this self-contained idea and it's all just ripped apart with suddenness you know and this would be something that was then then done later on in a very curtailed way with drew barrymore and scream um but you know let me go back to that when you look at the novel uh the robert block novel you know we start with norman bates from the word go the important factor is norman bates relationship with his mother mm-hmm. you know we are not introduced to mary kane until she's at the hotel she just talks about the things she's done and we heard, hear about like the selling of the cars through Argoblast, but she's not that or Arbogast. That's not that's not important. You know, this her narrative isn't important. It's just to get to the main crux of Norman Bates being a psychotic murderer. Mm-hmm. Whereas in the film, you have these two narratives playing off of each other, but also playing off of audience expectations. And that's what I find inherently fun about this. It's, it's just it's it's a film that plays its audience. It's as though Hitchcock was saying, you think I don't fucking have it? I still have it. Hmm. And you bought it. You buy this, you buy what you, you buy this story and I pull the rug out from you. Hmm. 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 Yeah, I think it's, Psycho is a, is a tough movie to talk about. And I feel like we've had a couple of these movies um, on our lists where the, the prevailing narrative of the thing is so... Whoa. That's Pauline Kale coming to beat us up. The prevailing narrative of, of a thing is so ingrained in the culture that it's um, kind of hard to talk about or to see or even to, like, to re-see because you're kind of just seeing it from the same perspective that you saw it the first time. So like before I even saw Psycho, I was aware of the twists and the famous shower scene. You know what I mean? So you're going in with a certain amount of knowledge and a lot of that knowledge kind of goes into your appreciation of the uh, film or well, kind of takes away from your appreciation of I will say this going into it I knew Norman Bates was a killer was the killer I did not know that Janet Lee died in the middle so you were excited or just weirded out how did you I was just out? shocked oh cool yeah I loved it I felt played because mm. I really thought like she was the the star throughout it so to that end every time I've seen this movie subsequently I never remember the first time I saw it. It was in high school. Um, I've enjoyed it. I think it's fine. I think it's it's a it's a classic, and we've you know had these conversations about classics before and how we deal with classics. And uh, but I really feel like I could find anything into it to connect with on my own level. It just was Psycho, and it was Hitchcock, and it was good. And you can see, um, you know, there's the intentionality. I just I always love that about Hitchcock. I'm not like a super Hitchcock guy, but I do love 
that when he's making a movie, he wants you to know certain things, but he's never going to come out and say it. You know what I mean? So when she's, I love that scene when she's packing up her bag and she keeps reflecting to the money. And then there's just like the parent, the picture of her parents, like over her shoulder. And she turns around and looks at it, but then he finds ways to turn the camera. So the parents are always kind of over her shoulder, watching her just kind of adding to this guilt thing. I love the fact that when she's on, when she's driving, she doesn't make any turns. She just kind of she turns into the car dealership, but then she just gets right back on the road. It's just it's just kind of self-contained Phoenix to Fairvale, California type scenario where it's almost yeah. like well, she's getting on one road and then she's gonna she's gonna drive from Phoenix to Fairvale and then she's gonna stop and that's like the end of the movie. You can actually kind of draw an outline from like where the movie starts to where the, the movie ends, and it's just this kind of straight thing. I I really like that self-containedness because this whole movie is is so self-contained. I love the 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 narration that she kind of um the hypothetical narration that she does like inside her head. What I really liked, I liked two things a lot in this last viewing. I liked the fact that, and you kind of mentioned this too, and Roger Ebert mentions it in his great movie review and a couple of other reviews I read mentioned it, that um, the movie starts being about $40,000 and then it stops being about $40,000. The thing about that is the movie stays being about $40,000 through the whole thing because even in that last scene where the doctor is just going on and on and on, which is, uh, we can get to that scene too because I really like that scene, um, about what... uh, you know, what's wrong with Norman Bates. I've, Sam asks about the $40,000. Like he says, well, like it wasn't what happened to the cash? And he's just like, Oh, we probably put it in the car. I bet if you drag the car, you'll find $40,000. It's like one of those things that doesn't matter. They're constantly being like, Lost what about the 40 grand? Years. What happened to the 40 grand? It's, it's, it's this weird thing that's kind of hovering over, over all of them. And I, I appreciate that because it's almost seems like nobody understands. Nobody can understand what, like this guy, and that's why. So Robert Ebert, in his in his great movie review, he says like the movie's one flaw is that really long scene. I think I I love that scene because here's a guy who's going to talk for five minutes and give you a perfect rundown of why he thinks that Norman Bates is the way he is, but in reality, nobody can understand why Norman is the way he is. You know what I mean? Yeah, and he's not and fixed. You didn't solve anything. He's having a conversation with his mother right now. You yeah. know what I mean? And that's the thing that's like a failing. That's the thing that makes like this film a great. I, I liked, I, like, I finally read the book today and I liked it. But a failing of the book is the fact that, like, we dwell deeply into Norman's psyche. He mm-hmm. becomes this, like, he's a bad guy, even without the split, the yeah. associative identities. But also, a, a major failing, too, is like, it still remains about the $40,000. And when the $40,000 is mentioned to him, like, we get inside Norman's head and he's like, oh, I could have done a lot of things with that money. Yeah, and that's like, that's oh, ridiculous. No, yeah, I don't want to. Yeah, no, the way like, that he and the thing that's great about it, like the thing that's great about it is like we get this shot constantly of the Los Angeles Times, you know, and then as he's about ready to leave, Norman sees it, just grabs him and throws him in the trunk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, it's fantastic. Entire, I love it. This entire anchor, this this yeah. albatross that's been around, that's around everyone's neck throughout the entire film. You know, the main antagonist of the film just kind of comes and throws it away, and that's what makes him so great. That's what makes like the Bates character, for as humanized as he is and how vulnerable he seems like you know anthony perkins is like weighs 80 pounds 100 pounds dripping wet you know the thing that makes it so great is he he is this force he takes out oh yeah he's he's this force that like the jasons and the freddies and whatever can be and it's it's not so much the fact that you know he's this killer um he kills two people in this film no and before you don't even know he's the killer 
When yeah, you perceive it, the force before you understand that he's the killer. Well, well, yeah, yeah. To perceive the force, to perceive, but he's there to disis, to just completely wipe the slate of any of of what everyone's life is kind of centered around. Mm-hmm. You know, Sam and and Marine Marine's life kind of uh, centered around kind of getting out of this hole that they're in, and you know the Lowry and, and the money and all that. Like he's just there to as a tsunami and just fucking is a wave over it and for what reason no he's crazy because he's there because he's just there. yeah well and so i i think this ties in a little bit to the same he's a juggernaut bitch yeah. <laughs> Does it say that in the book no that's a that's an x-men reference oh, okay um i think the thing that one of the thing that i like about it this time too was we just spent all this time watching these movies that i didn't really like not gene dealman <laughs> i love that movie but like, oh, that's a good one. But or but or debt, and you know, you were talking about La Lande and um, Belle de Jour, Lazar, Lazar, and they are those directors are, are suggesting things to you. You know what I mean? Um, I'll go to Ordet and we'll talk about the uh, what I can kind of mention what we talked about last week with the camera and that people are writing these essays about how the camera is God's vision of these people. And it's it's doing what it's doing because it's God hovering around the room. I suppose so. There's nothing in the movie that says that that is the case. Okay. Anything that is happening in this movie that people have picked up on is not necessarily in the movie. It's based off of information that they have on what Carl Dreyer could possibly be talking about. You know what I mean? And they are inferring certain information onto this movie or or um, extrapolating certain information from this movie based on what they assume this movie is doing. Okay? Hmm. That shit doesn't exist in Alfred Hitchcock. When he wants you to see something, he shows it to you. He doesn't always put the camera in front of it. But he fills the camera, he fills the screen up with all these little details that if when you watch it and you put it together, you're like, that's what I'm supposed to think. That's where my head is supposed to go. I'm supposed to feel this. I'm supposed to know this. And then we can go. You know what I mean? and when he deliberately wants you to see something, it is front and center. Mm-hmm. Like when he wants you to like to realize the money means nothing, the money is front and center three shots in a row. But that's not. Ha- but the best part about that is that I think in another director's hand, it it would seem weirdly ham-fisted and clumsy. It never seems that here. It has that, like you say, like that that every time he shows the money, it kicks everything up a notch. Maybe not like a full notch. Maybe just like a quarter of a notch. And we're not filming this, so you can't. You, the, the viewers or the listeners can't see my excellent notch motion, which I'm trademarking now. Um, it's a unit of measurement now that I'm going to use forever. Everything's going to be measured in notches. Um, but these other directors don't do that, and I'm not saying that they have to. I'm not saying that Carl Dreyer has to be Alfred Hitchcock, and I'm not necessarily comparing Alfred Hitchcock to Carl Dreyer. But I really enjoyed myself watching Psycho, not because it was. Uh, a thrill ride or one of, you know, it was a cool murder mystery or because it wasn't really all that difficult. It was because he's still laying all these little traps for you. You know what I mean? He's still positioning his, his world here for you to get something very specific out of it. And in getting something very specific out of it, out of it, it elevates the mood. It does something very specific to the tone. It's a, a, a level of control 
and um, intentionality that I just found really kind of not moving, um, but just I got I got a lot out of this viewing, this most recent viewing. I got a lot out of it. The thing is nice, yeah. And the thing I think that's nice about it is you don't have to do any legwork with it. It does all the legwork no. for you, and how you and how you have to feel or, or the tension you're supposed to feel. He mentions like how he would like sometimes like some or he doesn't mention sorry like it's a it's a shitty version of it, but the Hitchcock movie that came out a few years back with um, Anthony Hawkins and Helen Mirren has a, has a scene where he's watching. Oh yeah yeah yeah. Um, an initial. It's called Hitchcock. Oh, oh, I thought it was like a remake of something. No, no, it's just about the making oh, of Psycho. Oh, yeah, 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 okay. Um, but it has a scene where he's watching like one of the early showings of it through the projector room, and he's like doing a slashing motion with the screams of the audience, and it's like, that fits it, because like, it is like this conductor like playing, yeah. you know, playing an orchestra that is this audience. And, and the thing I just find funny is that people don't seem enamored with that, don't seem like, they seem like, want to this is like one of those movies that surprises me with how much people want to read into it. Yeah, me too. Me too. Because he, like he even mentioned, like there's a 1966 interview where they ask him about like his like how he feels about like some of the culpability with Psycho and like influence of Psycho, um, and about like how they're like this, these murders that happened this in L.A. and this guy had murdered three people, um, and like he said the last murder was influenced by Psycho. And newspaper people asked him like, "Well, how does that make you feel?" You know, like you feel any sort of responsibility with that. And he's like, well, my question will always be like, what film did he see when he killed the second woman? Mm. And he, you know, and it's like, and he, and he says like, it doesn't matter. It doesn't mean anything. Like that's not connected at all. And he ends the interview by saying, you couldn't make a picture like Psycho without your tongue in your cheek, you know? And that's, that's the thing. It, it is popcorn to him. Like mm-hmm. it's a popcorn movie. And it is. But it's a perfect fucking popcorn movie. Yep. A lesser popcorn film, you know, doesn't tell you where you're going to draw your knuckles in or doesn't tell you when you're going to lean in. This movie, like, guides you with all of that. Mm-hmm. You know, tells you all that. And, and there's and there's still, like, fun little things in there, like, that you don't notice until it repeat viewings. I never noticed the, like, little side smirk Anthony Perkins gets when the car finally starts going down again. Mm. I love that. Yeah. Like, I never noticed that before, but it's so great. Like, Anthony Perkins is really... I always forget how good he is at this. Every no, he's fantastic in this, yeah. Um, but that little smirk is just so great because it's like it is like the one humanizing moment of like this guy's a real piece of shit. <laughs> like even though you don't know he's the murderer yet, like when he has that little smile, like it's the one time you could watch it, even if you don't know he's the killer, you know, and kind of eh, and kind of go like, oh, he's he's kind of a scumbag, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And the fact that he's so satisfied with that, and it's just little moments like that are are, are just so well orchestrated. Yeah. It, the the um. The Gus Van Zandt version always bothered me, along with kind of like Quentin Tarantino's assumption that like if Alfred Hitchcock had had the opportunity to make Psycho or a lot of his movies with a lot more graphic sex and violence that he would have done it. But the the 1998 Psycho works so much less well because it kind of tells you exactly what Anthony Perkins or what uh, Norman Bates was doing when he was watching um, oh yeah, you know, Mary in the shower just or masturbating graphically. Yeah. yeah. Um, the, only, the only things I like more in the Gus Van Zandt version, and I watched this actually, I watched that version again leading up to this. I do like the fact that when she, you know Anne Hayes' Marion dies, it's a single take. Mm-hmm. Like, and it's a good looking single take. I like that the camera rotates. I think that's kind of like more fun looking. Mm-hmm. Um, and I prefer Robert Forrester as the psychologist. 
Mm. Yeah, I just like Robert Forster as a psychologist. Well, I like the I, I do like the cast in that movie. I think I think they're uh, I think it's a good cast. I think it's just one of those things where, um, the point of the movie was to leave a lot of information off the table, uh, yeah. to leave a lot of suggestiveness, um, and they just took all that stuff out of it. So. Yeah, the the ninety eight remake feels more like closely aligned with the book. Honestly, mm. interesting, interesting. Anything else? I think I think that covers it. Psycho's good. Psycho's good. Psycho's good one. I enjoyed it. Thank you, Mario. You're welcome. I take all the credit for that. <laughs> you should. It's on your list. The, the only joy you get from this quarantine has all been me. I don't know if that's necessarily the case, but <laughs> you can have some. <laughs> well, of, you can have some of the credit. No, I know it's not true, but I'm just gonna tell myself. Oh, okay. It's true. Well, then, yeah. Do whatever you gotta do. Do whatever you gotta do. All right. Guess we'll be right back with your number 28. All right, welcome back. I'm not going to I'm going to spare you the interlude again partially because we've already covered this movie. This will actually be this was on your top 20 of the last 20 years too, right? Yes. So this will be the fourth time we've talked about this movie in some capacity, some official capacity on this podcast. That being said, my number 28 is uh, City of God. Qual é, Dadji? Dadji é o caralho. Meu nome agora é Zé Pequeno, porra. Zé Pequeno sempre quis ser o dono da cidade de Deus, desde os tempos de moleque, quando ele ainda se chamava Dadinho. Ele se diverte, eu vou ficar torto. Uh, this movie is from 2002. To reiterate, it is directed by Fernando Mirielis. To reiterate, um, I saw this movie in theaters twice. The first time, I got horrible, horrible, horrible motion sickness, Mario, because I get bad motion sickness. Uh, to the point when I was recently at Universal Studios, I stopped enjoying some of those like 3D, they move the chair all around rides uh, because I just wanted to die. So <laughs> because my unlike, my head was like spinning. Unlike Back to the Future, you went back to the latrine, am I right? Yeah, it was close. I if I didn't close my eyes all the way through the second turn on the Jimmy Fallon ride, I might have lost it. I might have lost it. I'm sorry, the what ride? Jimmy Fallon has a ride? It's actually pretty good. It's like Mario Kart, but humongous. Does it have Jimmy Fallon on it? It does. Oh, that's that's not that good. <laughs> um but I got bad, bad motion sickness. But um, one thing I knew was that I had never seen anything like this film before in my life. So me and my my friend Carl, um, who I went to see this movie with, we saw the Orange Cinema. They used to have – the cinema was really big and sprawling. There was like one big main kind of theater thoroughfare up the aisle. But then off shooting to the, to the right, there was a kind of like like – dark like smaller theaters even and even though they were smaller theaters they weren't they were still like huge theaters but they were they showed smaller movies and it was right over there it wasn't near it was near an exit but it wasn't near the parking lot um it was kind of like on the opposite side of everything and i I have this really vivid memory of leaving the theater and just being like what the fuck um 
we and so we had to see it again. So we saw it again, like I think a couple of days later. Um, and you were nineteen when this came out. Uh, two thousand two. So it came out in two thousand release year two thousand three. Yeah. So I was, uh, no, I would have been twenty one. Twenty one. Okay. Um. So this would have been like your two thousand seven movies are for me. Kind of. It's it's interesting because I had. So there's a lot of lead up to this movie, I think, and it's lower because it does. I don't have like this, the personal connection to the themes, and it didn't instruct me in anything. But you know, before this, you have your high fidelities and your almost famouses and your American beauties and your being John Malkovich's, um, and a lot of other movies in between there. And then all of a sudden comes this movie, and one of the other things that you're doing that whole time too, as you're kind of building up your knowledge based on movies is you're seeing a lot of movies so you're kind of hanging i bet i was seeing a lot of jim jarmusch movies me and my other friend john paul were really into you know you john paul we're really into jim jarmusch and i had seen um wings of desire then and i like going into all these movies and you know all that that famous jim jarmusch movie wings of desire no no no, but like those those types of movies i know um (laughs) You know, collaborating and also Akira Kurosawa really digging into the Criterion Collection and all that other stuff. Shortcuts, which was a great, amazing Criterion release that came with a book of um, the uh, Robert um, Raymond Carver short stories. Um, And then you run into City of God and you're just like, well, this is like nothing. And I think one of the th- really interesting things we mentioned when we talked about it last time with you, I think I mentioned it or you mentioned it, or one of us mentioned it and then we had a discussion about it, was the first thing that came into my mind when I, I, I watched it again was Pulp Fiction. And why is it the first thing that comes in Pulp Fiction the first thing that comes to mind? The first thing that comes to mind because it was taking movies as people understood them and then just blowing them up. So, Fernando Mirielis took what I think is a kind of um, fairly standard issue movie theme, which is like drugs and gangs. People make a lot of movies about drugs, they make a lot of movies about gangs, make a lot of movies about gun violence. They do all those things. A lot of directors would do them using, you know, what I think Guy Ritchie is kind of the most disgusting purveyor of the faux Quentin Tarantino model, which is using a lot of highly stylized filmmaking things. Um, a lot of quick cuts, a lot of, uh, subversive film tropes and things like that. Um, I'm thinking of like a weird and Quentin Tarantino himself is just a, a rip off of Tony Scott. <laughs> sure. Did you mean that? I just, I just You're just throwing it out there, just like a, yeah, just, like a grenade. Just, I'm just, you know, <laughs> peppering things to just either spots. Um, but Fernando Miguel did something different. So where someone like Guy Ritchie, who I hate, goes totally maximalist with trying to like subvert film, Fernando Miguel kind of does it a different way, and I think the. One of the great scenes in, in modern film history, as far as I'm concerned, is Benny's Farewell Party. And the reason that scene works so good is, one, the stakes are never get higher in that movie than they are right then. It is the, it is the movie's, um, you know... Apex, yeah. 
and, and when I say apex, and I, I don't know how you feel about this, but when I think of like a, a chart and I think of apex, I just think of COVID case charts. You know what I mean? I, yeah. I it's like the defining chart now of my life. I mean, I, I don't of, want to have a defining chart, but I do have a defining chart now. I think of the apex predator, Randy Orton. I'm glad I have you in my life, Mario. <laughs> To kind of redirect my <laughs> redirect my thinking from one thing into Randy Orton, um, but it hits its apex and then it's all downhill from there. And that down is so fucking low, man. As soon as the knockout Ned stuff comes in, that shit gets so dirty and so so messed up. And just it takes it takes the kind of uh, you know. It's almost like a party for that whole movie until Benny dies. You know what I mean? From when the tender trio are stealing things to even when little Dice is kind of is shooting up that hotel. Um, and then and then when he shoots Goose and, and, you know, it just keeps going and going and going and going and going up until that party. But the thing about the party that I always find so amazing is the spot, the spotlight scene, the spotlight sequence in that movie when... Lil Zay is looking for Benny. You know what I mean? And he's just moving through this crowd and they've it's it's no longer shot with like a cinema quality. You know what I mean? It's like surveillance footage. And this spotlight is just following Lil Zay through this that, crowd. It feels 16 millimeter. It probably it is, but it's not it's not like framed in a way no. that looks like cinema. It, there's no angles, you know what I mean? There's no close-ups. Until there's a until there's close-ups, but there's that that kind of wash tracking scene where he's just kind of watching him move through this crowd. It's almost like he's on a different layer. It seems like this, there's there's tears to this crowd, and you don't necessarily understand how he's doing it, and you don't necessarily want to know how he's doing it. But it just takes you. You know how in some movies when they take you out of the action, it's like a kind of stopper. This yeah, takes but- you so out of the action that it feels it, – it takes it to another level. I mean we're talking about – so we mentioned elevated action like a whole bunch of times we were talking about Psycho. It's every single one of these shots in this movie, every single sequence, every single kind of frame seems to elevate the terror and like the degradation of these people and the risk – of everything that they're doing. And he's just, I mean, he's just, I mean, he's walking, he's looking for Benny, you know, something terrible is going to happen, but it's not shot like something necessarily terrible is going to happen. It's shot like he just wants you to see something. And I think that's the great thing about city of God is that the whole movie is framed like Fernando Murielis is saying, I have something to show you. I'm going to show you something. And if it's cool, if any moment ever seems cool to you, it's because to these people at that moment, it was fucking cool. It's like the most judgment-free movie um, I think I've ever seen in my life. He's not saying that these people are bad or good. He's saying like these are their circumstances that they're operating in. Here it is. Take a yeah, look at it. A, th- a thing that gave me newfound appreciation on this and, and rewatch this movie after we would watch saw two popes after my first discussion yep. on um city of god but two popes does something similar yeah it does in the sense of instead of being sort of like surveillance footage or, or, or non-cinematic it becomes more like a documentary footage yeah quite often it shares that but it, it's 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 a sense of of adding a scale to how this very intimate portrait of two men 
plays an extremely pivotal role in the world at large. Mm -hmm. You know, the fact that this story of two men, you know, is so carefully under the eye that it deserves a documentary look. And, and I, I agree with that. Like, like, it, and I didn't really notice that first time I saw in City of God, but I, I see it now with, you know, you get the scope of like this rawness and this dirtiness. That's not necessarily to denigrate those characters, but you know, we are dealing with kind of this like party atmosphere and, and this, it, it's not party, but it's like to, to me, but it's more like this maximalist at, attitude and and this 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 fever it has a lot of that kind of like early 90s german film essence to it mm. kind of like run lola run mm. i'm sorry that'd be late 90s uh run lola run and whatnot where it's really maximalist and moving at like all octaves but it's um, maximalist but it does in a different so, way but it is it, yeah. because the way it's because that is the life these people are leading because it has that moments to breathe and to be so intimate because of the fact that every major character in this film has pathos for what they do has has a, a motive for what they do or has a reason they're in that position and the film allows itself at times to breathe to kind of give you some scope of that but at the same time they live in this so such a an, an insane world you know yeah um, this this circus almost you know like the, the original title even though it's like state god has this like saccada de deuce kind of almost i always read this as like has has a, has a circus, you mm -hmm. know, and it's it's what it is. That's these real characters in this this insane world. It's the world around them that's the cartoon almost. But they themselves are very realized, sculpted characters. And you, like you said, when Benny dies, everything shifts into being Falls apart. really yeah. on the ground, really on the ground level of knowing that these are people. Yep, it removes the fun of that. Removes the en the energy remains, but it removes the fun of that energy. Or the excitement of that energy and not that it was brings yeah. you down to the floor and not that it was so fun fun is the word we're using to describe kind of like the energy the, the energy that the the characters in the film seem to be um imbued with you know what i mean they're moving through this life with a, a real energy a real uh, like a lot of possibility for for all of like the terrible things that you and me would perceive that they're doing for them this is this is their life and little zay sees a lot of a possibility in that like the run see a lot of possibility in that like i think the uh, kara is an interesting figure because he kind of sees the limitations of this life and he's kind of happy to work within those limitations as long as he keeps keeps to <laughs> as long as he keeps to get he gets to keep living um but and then there's and like and then through that all there's rocket who is just kind of observing and he's not judging this at all because he's been on the inside of it the whole time even if he hasn't been involved in any of the crimes um his brother was one of the tender trio he grew up with this lifestyle he grew up observing this lifestyle and seeing the ramifications of it but he's also not so um you know removed from it that he can sit in judgment of of anything that's happening. Um, and that gives it a really original and kind of thrilling set of, of, of stakes and circumstances to just kind of, to kind of build off of, you know what I mean? Um, it's that there's, that there's all these people who this life means something different to. And weirdly, they're all, they can all meet the same end at literally any time. Like rockets afraid he's going to die a bunch of times in this movie. Even though yeah. he didn't do anything, and because that's... anybody could die at any point in this, right? He's not even involved in it. Um, 
And no, when I say when I say energy, I I more mean like the certain excitement that comes with really strongly crafted frantic filmmaking. You know, it's the same thing you see in in Children of God, or you see in The Revenant. Um, you know, or, or you see in those sorts of films where there's a even though the stakes are high, there's a real attachment <clears throat> to the energy of it. Uh, it, it that, that, yeah. that even though it's the narrative itself is horrific or the world around is horrific, you can't help but be excited by the ferocity by which that, that those images are shown to you. Mm. Well, that's, that's what, what I mean by the energy. And that's one of the things it that kind of, it almost, it almost, and it's interesting because when it kind of pulls that layer apart, you like get that overwhelming sense of guilt for being so. Oh, I know. Excited Dude, by it. The, you saying that, um, like the the overwhelming sense of guilt thing, is actually really intuitive because that is honestly how I feel. Because I really feel that that scene. I love that scene so much. I, I would I would love to just kind of like study that scene, but it is it's like the final pulling away of when it turns firmly into a documentary. You know what I mean? When the footage turns into documentary footage, it stops being cinematic in any way and it's just documentary footage. It pulls away the last kind of false vestiges of whatever that energy is supposed to be. And it's like this energy is actually the anxiety of of constant death hanging over literally every single one of these people that's at this party. That is, that is what that energy is. And you can kind of, you can gussy that energy up with like blonde highlights or a new shirt or smoking some weed or doing whatever, getting a gun, killing a person, um, you know, cornering a, a four, cornering a four year old kid in the, in a, and his, and his six year old friend and shooting one of them in the foot. You can, you know, you can, hide that energy behind stuff like that but ultimately what this energy is is fear it is a whole movie about fear but you don't really realize it until halfway through the movie it's like shit the all these all these people are afraid to die all the time like you thought it was just a couple of people you thought these people were in control you thought whatever you thought little d say was crazy when he was a kid and now he's kind of you know he's crazy but he's got this he's got this rationalized passion for the for the city that he wants to take care of it but that's none of that shit is true the truth is that like it everyone is gonna die you're all gonna die and it takes that kind of stripping away of that cinematic veil to realize that that's the case and that's why it's so good but that's the thing like when you talk about when you talk about children of men you talk about the revenue so when you talk about quran you talk about inaritu they leave the cinematic veil up the whole time. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? And that's why I kind of, I like Fernando Mirielis more as a filmmaker than those guys because I remember talking about this when we talked about The Two Popes. When I, when we started, me and my wife started The Two Popes, I, I said out loud, like, I don't know how he's going to do this. Like, I don't know how this director is going to make a movie about two popes. And then the movie starts, I'm like, oh, yeah, he's going to make it like he's making a Fernando Mirielis movie. Where, like, all this stuff matters. And, and that's one of the things I dislike about the fact that when people talk about the two popes, they talk about the fact that, um, you know, they don't talk enough about, you know, the abuse scandals and stuff like that. And I, and I want to say it's because the abuse scandals there over the whole thing. It's literally sitting on top of this movie. It is sitting on the chest of this movie, constricting the the airways of, of both of these men. You know what I mean? Yeah, and I'm that, like City of... God, which has a very spoken weight, 
you know, two popes is, is unspoken weight. On purpose, though. Oh, on absolutely. purpose. It makes, they have to, it makes the idea that they're, they're not just grappling with faith. They're not Ordet. Actually, that would have been good to watch the two popes and Ordet together. They're not Ordet in the sense that they're grappling with faith in the sense of, oh, I don't know if I should marry this person. You know what I mean? It's, I've lost my faith probably because of all of these reasons. Yeah. What do I do? And I think what they ultimately come to grips with is that, like, your faith, you know, is is going to be what it is. It it, it it's going to be what it is, and then all of these other things, all of these worldly things, in have to general, be dealt with. Doesn't... Have to be dealt with in a different way than your faith. You know what I mean? You can't. You you have to be able to reconcile your faith before you can reconcile this stuff, because one thing has nothing to do with the other, and that's just there. That's just like hanging over the whole thing. But I think something similar like that is happening to City of God too, and that's why I respond so strongly to it. And this is going to be one of the last movies where I talk about. I'm just. Uh, this is going to be one of the last movies where I can talk pretty much objectively about it. You know what I mean? Where there isn't. I'm not necessarily saying that my experience watching it has kind of influenced my viewing of this movie. City of God is amazing, and if I if I had grown up there, or if I had known someone that had grown up there, if I had had a stake a personal stake in what was happening down there. It might be like way higher on my list. It might be number one, but it is kind of the last movie we're going to do where I'm saying, you know why this movie's on my list? Because it's fucking awesome. Because it's, because it's so, as a film. it's yeah. so fucking awesome that it, I, I can't even, I can't even comprehend, I can't even comprehend it. I, I can't even take it sometimes with this movie. You know what I mean? I just can't take it. It's, it's just, yeah. Go, what do you say? Um, but there's a reason why like blindness doesn't work. Because the subject matter behind blindness isn't has prone to kind of dwelling out the material from it from a filmmaking perspective. No, it's not you know? cinematic at all. Yeah, it just is kind of there. Um, but when he's given something to work with, he's gonna he's gonna dwell into that just using such an acute knowledge of of so many like he has such like a, a solid control over so many different ways of filming a movie mm-hmm. you know yes like a lot of people want to compare him to like a paul greengrass because of how frantic and how much energy there is with that the camera movement in city of god but like he gets rid of that in anything else he's made it's just one aspect of his filmmaking abilities well i think the you paul know, greengrass it's, it's just yeah, the Paul Greengrass comparison is no good because I think the Paul Greengrass does it just for the sake of doing it. It's just his style. Oh, absolutely. I mean, yeah. he is really Fernando Mirielis is earning something with that, with whatever he's doing in regards to how he moves the camera here. And he's not doing it he, for no reason. It's something he does like occasionally. He's not doing, you know, he does that in City of God because that's what the energy of the that yeah. movie demands. You know? Yeah, yeah. But he's not doing it with blindness. He's not doing it with, um. The two popes, you know, the two popes is often off steady cam, but it's not jerky or anything. It just it doesn't demand that energy. No, he's not like he's not like smash cutting between like different popes' faces or you know stopping to take Polaroids or or you know um, I don't know any any number of things that they do in City of God. They're not going to do with scene, the two popes. I got to be fair though. That scene where the Pope Mobile gets hit by the car. Because they had the six underground. Yep. 
and two popes mashup scene. Yep. Anthony Hawkins goes rolling. I thought that was an appropriate use of, of the um, <laughs> camera off steady. No, that's good. That's good. But blindness too. The, good handicap scene. The weird thing about blindness is that blindness takes place in one building. So, and it's, it's a building that has, I think just two corridors. It's not even like very much of a building. So it's just not eligible to take the Fernando Muriel's treatment in the same way that like a different movie is going to take. Especially too, because like everyone's supposed to be blind except for Julianne Moore. So it would be weird for there to be anyone else's perspective other than Julianne Moore's, which means that she's going to have the most level perspective, which means the movie can't just start like shifting all over the place because why, why would that be happening? Julianne Moore's not, doesn't do that. She's the one. She was a boring. She was a boring Chris Starling. She's not going to do anything exciting ever. Yeah, poor Julianne Moore. She just needs a better agent. She they got her an Oscar. She got her Oscar. Yeah, but she kind of like fidgets around stuff, doesn't she? Oh, right, she did win it. I was like, what Oscar did she win? Still Alice. She yeah. won an Oscar for that, didn't she? Yeah. That that movie happened. It did. I thought. I really thought I'd ate some bad shrimp or something. No, maybe I'm happy for her. She deserves to have an Oscar. Oh, I'm happy that she has an Oscar, but I, I'm just still surprised that still Alice happened. Well, this is, I mean, and this is where we're, one of the that things. That book I, is no good. That book's no good. I I'm never not read a it. Fan of that book either. One of the things I always forget about. I don't about, know if you could say that book's no good, though. Be fair you could say it. Say. Just say it. You could say anything you want. Have you met our president? You could say anything you want to say. Um, one of the interesting things about this movie is that it got nominated for four Oscars. So it wasn't like it just happened in a vacuum. Like cinema, like world cinema stopped for a second and said like, holy shit, city of God. Like we better take care of that. Like Muriela's got nominated for best director. That's not an accident. That didn't happen for nothing. You know, it wasn't still Alice, the book I was thinking of. I was thinking of a different book. Flowers for Algernon. No. To Kill a Mockingbird. No, there's 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 a book I read about that was actually like semi autobiographical. About what? Oh man, about a woman who suffers from like Louis body dementia, and I I thought that was still Alice, but it wasn't still Alice because still Alice is fictional. But the book I read was semi autobiographical. I don't know. Now it's gonna bug me. It's really depressing. Is it by S. Craig Zoller? <laughs> She's took me a second, like like wait what? No, I was like, um. All right, that's it. City of God. I'm glad we I'm glad we got to it. I love that movie. I'm actually sad I'm probably never going to watch it again. Cuz I've watched it a lot of times in the last like 6 months. Yeah, who knows? Fucking world's falling apart. It really it's is. It's hot up here. Ugh. Oh, I mi- I miss the Pivotal Film Studio heat, man. I miss it. Look at this. I miss the this- <laughs> You have Glenn dancing hair. I yeah, miss no. the summers in the studio, sweating our fucking asses off for like three hours. I don't miss it because I am living it. <laughs> it's hot. In, it's hot in the annex as well. Believe that. Believe that. If it is hot where you are, um, because your coronavirus numbers are exploding because your state opened up too early, or because of the temperature, you can tell us at Film Pivotal. So basically, you're saying if you're from Wisconsin, you can tell us that film pivotal. Or like Alabama or Georgia or the states where case numbers are exploding all of a sudden. Um, 
Or you can message us at uh, pivotalfilmpodcast at gmail.com or you can go to pivotalfilm.com where I haven't updated in a while. Uh, but we do have a list of uh, the movies on our top 100 list, list of the beers that we drank, how to subscribe, uh, our best of list for the last couple of years. Um, but yeah, I hope everyone's staying safe. What are we doing next week? Are we doing a list movie? Well, or are we doing? I think, I think I, it's up to you. You want to do list? We don't have an A block for next week. Maybe next week we'll do the the last um, director movie for a while because we're gonna get a couple weeks in a row of 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 new releases. Oh yeah, yeah. So let's let's uh, let's do let's do uh, that. Let's let's pick a movie. I got it open. What do you want to do? Uh, we want to still go off the critics poll, I assume. I think so. It's the one that. Can't mo- really, I don't. Let's let's see something that I want. Something I want to watch. Um, I mean, we haven't done. Is what Bergman is on there that we? I don't. I may not have seen that you haven't seen yet, because we haven't done a Bergman yet. I mean, and I haven't seen Persona in a long time, so. Yeah, I haven't seen Persona, but I'm trying to think of like a Bergman. Wild Strawberries, I assume you've seen. I have not seen Wild Strawberries. Should we do Wild Strawberries then? Let's do it. That's a Sayus, right? What? No, Wild Strawberries is Bergman. Oh, what's this a Sayus movie that I'm thinking of? I don't remember. Oliver Sayus? Yeah. No, not a Sayus. Uh, Kira Strami. Taste of honey? I don't know. I'm thinking it out loud now. I'm like falling asleep. Um, all right. Yeah, let's do Wild Strawberries. Okay. Well, I'll find out what this is. But yeah, uh, we'll do Wild Strawberries by Bergman. That'll be a good Bergman week. I'll watch Persona too, so I can talk about Persona. Bergman! Until then, Tom? Hold on. Hold on. I want to get this right. I want to know the movie I was thinking of, and then we'll do it. Taste the film. <laughs> Thirty. There's a taste of cinema. The 30 best movies of 2018. Oh, what they put? What they put in their? T- what's, what's their? What's their number 30? Their number 30. Sisters, brothers, starting out strong. Uh, so, can I, ra- so can I can I raise my hand here? I actually was thinking about the Sisters, brothers the other day. The Sisters, brothers would have 100 percent been on my list for not la- the 2019, but 2018 if it was released i think about that movie all the time all right that movie is fucking great 23's house that jack built taste of cherry the, is the kira strong uh, movie that i was okay. thinking of this movie this, this website has so many pop-ups there's like seven pop-ups all at once terrible all right um oh, their, their number one is oh first reformed it's amazing it beat out roma take that roma take that all right, so um, until next week, go see a Bergman movie, then drink a Swedish beer. If there is such a thing. There's got to be a Swedish beer, right? There's got to be. Uh, if I was going to drink a Swedish beer, Tom, I would, you know, shake my shoulders around, you know, do a little, do a little flex, do a little flex, and then and then have a have a a, a bear, have, have a. A Maris tags. I have a Maris. A crocodile beer. I have a crocodile beer. I have one of those. And then we will talk to you next week. <laughs>